Navy Federal is proud to serve more than 8 million members and is open to active duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their family members. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits like a credit card APR average that's 4% lower than the industry's, member-only exclusive rates, and more. Visit NavyFederal.org MLB for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app today. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Let's change up the way you watch baseball. Introducing Change Up, a brand new live whip around show across the league brought to you by MLB and DAZN. Jump in and out of the best places they happen and get expert analysis from hosts who bring a fresh personality and new perspective to the game. It's on every night and available on nearly every device, smart TVs, tablet, mobile, and gaming consoles. Getting set up with DAZN is easy. Just download the DAZN app in the Apple or Android app store, sign up by creating an account, and then start watching across any of your devices. That's D-A-Z-N. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. This program is part of The Ringer Podcast Network, which is itself part of TheRinger.com, home to gobs of coverage about the two most important things in American culture right now. One of them is Game of Thrones. Uh, Ask the Maester Live with Jason Concepcion and Mallory Rubin is ongoing as I record this intro. Uh, The other important thing in American pop culture is the Sixers blowout win over Brooklyn on Monday night. So read about both of those things at TheRinger.com. One note before we get started, I'm about to talk to Zach Cram about the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, but thanks to the wonders of time travel, I'm recording this intro with the knowledge that Blake Snell is going on the uh, injured list with a broken toe. Uh, We did not have that knowledge while we were recording that segment. Uh, So just now I reminded Zach that a broken toe ended Dizzy Dean's career. He doesn't seem that concerned by it. So please, uh, like I said, bear that in mind when you hear how bullish he is on Tampa Bay. Uh, And we'll have that for you right after this break. So my first guest today is a familiar voice, uh, back with a familiar bit. Except apparently it's not a fam- or it's not a bit anymore. You actually do believe that the Tampa Bay Rays are the best team in the American League East, Zach Cram. What an honor for you to get to talk today about the Rays, the best team in the league, and then the Astros, who are no longer the best team in the league because Tampa is here. So I guess explain yourself because. I'm aware of the record. I'm aware of of uh, some of their individual performances, but uh, like it's it's the middle of April. Like the the Mariners are in first place too. So why are the why are the Rays different? Sure. So I think uh, the bit with the Rays started when I picked them to win the AL East, and you reacted sort of outraged that I would dare to pick someone other than the Yankees or Red Sox. Um, it turns out that both the Yankees and Red Sox have problems that. I think even I, who did not pick them to win the division, did not foresee. I didn't foresee the Yankees being able to put an injured list lineup together that would probably beat their normal lineup right now. I didn't foresee Chris Sale slumping like this, etc. But I think Tampa has been playing incredibly well. It's not just that their AL East rivals have been struggling. The Rays right now, as a pitching staff, for instance, are number one in park-adjusted ERA. They're number one in park-adjusted FIP. They've allowed the fewest homers in the league. They're tied for third in walk rate. They're first in strikeout rates, striking out more than 30% of opposing hitters. And if you look at their entire pitching staff collectively, it's basically the same numbers that Felipe Vazquez of the Pirates put together last year. So basically, as an entire pitching staff, they're throwing like an all-star closer. It's really hard to lose games when you're pitching that well. And that's even before you get to the offense, which has some of those impressive individual performances at that uh, I guess you were referring to. So a lot of these individual components I like, and they're uh, two that, that stand out, I guess we'll start here, are the two guys that got back for Chris Archer at the deadline last year, Austin Meadows and Tyler Glass now, both of whom were uh, highly touted prospects who sort of struggled to put it all together in Pittsburgh. And now Austin Meadows is, through two weeks at least, hitting like Barry Bonds and Tyler Glass now has a, he's allowed one run on a solo homer in 17 innings, and that's it. So I don't know, how much of this do you think is sustainable? I, I don't think Austin Meadows is going to continue to hit like Barry Bonds. I think what's interesting about Tampa's roster as currently constructed is 
like Blake Snell is probably an all-star. I think if Glass now, maybe Charlie Morton continue pitching like they are now, they could be all-stars. But you look at the lineup, they don't really have any automatic shoe-ins to the all-star team. Uh, they haven't for a few years now. Like Wilson Ramos made the all-star team last year. He's gone. Corey Dickerson made the all-star team the year before, and they got rid of him immediately too. And before that, they didn't have a position player make the all-star team since 2013. So it's not new for Tampa to sort of go starless on offense. But what I like about this offense is that every single player is at least decent. Like, sure, Mike Zunino isn't hitting right now, but I think he will hit better than he has so far. And what that depth allows Tampa to do isn't just put together a lineup that's difficult to pitch to one through nine, but it also allows them to leverage their strengths. Like Avisail Garcia, I don't think is a great hitter, but by surrounding him with other players who can compliment him, you can only play him in advantageous situations and then he can succeed. So I think Tampa one through 25, one through 30, 35, really, if you consider how deep their minor league system is at the upper levels, gives them that sort of depth that is already being tested in New York and Boston. Yeah, I think our uh, uh, our friends at Fangraphs, uh, Eric Longenhagen and Kyla McDaniel, they don't do like a traditional top 10 uh, organizational prospect list. They just write up everybody they think has any sort of value. I think they went to 54 Tampa Bay Rays, something like that. So obviously not all those guys are major league ready or going to contribute in the, even in the next I don't know, three or four years, but that does speak to some of the depth. And, and some of these players are homegrown. Willie Adamas was a, a top prospect. Uh, Brandon Lau, who uh, I know well from his time at the University of Maryland, uh, they locked up long term. He's hitting uh, 302, 356, 585. I don't know if that's, uh, well, let me put it this way. I know he's not going to keep doing that, but he's a, a good second baseman. And uh, the Rays uh, express that belief by locking him up. Um, and Apart from that, it's just a lot of solid players. Like I think we both like Yandy Diaz, uh, who came over uh, in the the trade with uh, with Cleveland this offseason. Um, and it's just one guy after another. Garcia is another example of you know you're not going anywhere if that guy's the the best player on the team, but if he's the third best player on the team, and they've got you know seven third best players, it's it's almost it's like a very Denver Nuggetsy uh, method of, of team construction, which which is interesting. That's a really good analogy, I think. And what it allows them to do is like Yandy Diaz, for instance, if he isn't performing that well, they can replace him with someone who probably has a roughly similar uh, average output as Yandy Diaz would. But then if one of those guys or two of those guys break out, like Yandy Diaz might be doing, like Brandon Lau, as you said, might be doing, then they can experiment and see who might be, you know, who might have the hot hand and they can figure out what different lineup permutation to put together every day. And I am kind of drawn to that method of team building. It's an interesting tension, I think, because I don't want to go too far in praising Tampa for essentially not spending money. Like they signed Charlie Morton this winter as their most expensive free agent ever, but they really didn't do anything on offense. And in fact, they got rid of CJ Crone. Uh, so I don't want to go too far in praising them for putting together a cheap lineup, but I think it allows them to do interesting strategic things at the same time, which is uh, interesting for Tampa because that's kind of what they're doing with their pitching staff too, with the opener strategy. Right. And so let's talk about this. Cause I think that is the central tension for, uh, for people like us who are, who are sort of conscious of the, uh, the economic forces at work behind the baseball product you see on the field where this is a, a fun, young, you know, largely young team with a lot of interesting and or likable personalities. Um, this ought to be a fun team to watch. And, you know, there is something to be said of the underdog uh, coming after the uh, uh, the Red Sox and Yankees. I mean, Jonah Carey wrote a whole book about this when the when the Rays did it for the first time a year ago. And they are operating in many respects on the cutting edge of sabermetrics if we still want to call it that or analysis or team building like this is the the bleeding edge of development but at the same time it's in service of you might not choose adjectives like slimy or you might uh you know it's it's not exactly the the most admirable way to to go about building a team or at least the front office is operating under constraints imposed by ownership that's not willing to to spend uh to to pay its labor what it's worth essentially 
So, you know, how, is, is it possible? Because I, I, I genuinely do struggle to, to separate, wow, the, the Rays are doing this interesting thing with why they're doing it, you know? And to put some numbers to this conversation, the Rays opening day payroll this year was $60 million, which even for them is low. That's their lowest since 2011. Uh, last year, they were at $76 million. And compared to other teams, like their $60 million payroll is the lowest in the game by more than $10 million. Right. So and as even, much as we've shit on Cleveland for not uh, spending enough to contend, this is just, this is an entirely different ballgame, so to speak. Cleveland's payroll is literally double Tampa Bay's right now. So I don't know. I think the way to watch it is almost to appreciate the individual players for what they're doing and to appreciate, like, it's not Kevin Cash's fault, I think anyway, that his front office and his ownership aren't spending what they're spending. <laughs> the and, ironically named Kevin yes. Cash, as it turns out. So I, I think I can appreciate what he's doing strategically to try and maximize uh, the output that his roster has. And I think I can appreciate the players like Brandon Lau for being able to produce as a rookie, even though I don't you know, love the practice that Tampa did in getting him to sign the kind of extension he did. Uh, but at the same time, I think you can almost root for them to be in a race in July and hope that ownership spends for something uh, to add pieces, maybe a higher salary player at the deadline because they have all that space. I think that's like the only way to make anything about the Ozzy Albies or Ronald Acuna contracts feel better is to hope that Atlanta then subsequently spends all that money they're saving on different players on veterans. And I don't know if that'll actually happen, but because you're kind of stuck between those two situations. It's a way to almost rationalize it to yourself. Yeah, and I guess like we're we're sort of stuck hoping that um, that the, what the front office is doing, you know, led by Hein Bloom, is is imposed by ownership that left to their own devices. If they were give, you know given a two hundred million dollar payroll budget, that they would go out and use it uh, as wisely as as uh, um, as they could. And this is just and it's not just uh, an internal you know, race to the bottom, so to speak. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a, it's a complicated, I mean, so many things in baseball are complicated now. And this is, uh, this is just another one of them, I guess. And I think that, you know, I, for just to, to be totally honest, I think that does color my analysis sometimes that I, I don't want to get on board with what Tampa Bay is doing, you know, on some subconscious level, because I don't want to, you know, praise a, a method of team building that I think borders on, uh, maybe unethical is too strong a word, but, but you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's difficult because I think in a vacuum, Tampa's strategies are really fascinating. They've mm-hmm. already Waxahasi swapped this year by putting a pitcher at, he, he was a left-handed reliever. So they had him pitch to a batter, then move to first base for a righty and then move back to pitcher. That kind of thing might not even be allowed starting next year once the three batter minimum is under play. So I'm almost treasuring all these moments as they arise. You know, when I like would play baseball computer games, I would do strategies like the opener because, you know, that's not affecting real people. That's affecting pixels. So I think I can appreciate that and almost be enthralled by like, all right, what's the next innovation they're going to come up with? What kind of strategy are they going to use and I think that is almost the flip side of what you're saying, where maybe I am almost higher on Tampa Bay than I otherwise would be because they add that new strategic wrinkle that other teams of a similar stature don't. Yeah, it's I mean, it's genuinely innovative and it's I don't know, it's the same, but it's the same sort of moral ambivalence, I guess. I get uh, like watching SpaceX land rockets in unison after sending them into orbit, you know, um, it's just there is no ethical consumption under capitalism, maybe is the the takeaway we should have from this. So I, I do want to put one caveat on what Tampa Bay has done, because, you know, obviously 12 and four is great. The lead they've got on uh, on Boston and New York is going to be very useful. I think they will need all of it if they're going to uh, hang on to first place in this division. Um, but if you look at the at the teams they played. So they they took three or four at home from Houston on the first weekend of the season, which is incredibly impressive. Uh, and since then, um, they have played a schedule that I would describe as dog shit. Uh, 
they were at home to Colorado, at San Francisco, at the White Sox, at the Blue Jays. Uh, this week, their next three games are home to Baltimore, and then they play the the Red Sox and the Royals alternating, and then Baltimore again. So, like, apart from four games against Houston and six games against Boston, they're going to get to, I don't know, mid-May? before they really get challenged like they're they're sort of they're beating up on bad teams and you know the those games count in the standings as much as any other um but i'm curious how much that uh factors into your optimism if at all i think in the abstract it does you know discounting the fact that winning three out of four against houston is probably the most impressive series one of the season thus far but when you look at the other teams that have started the year with early schedules they're not winning like tampa bay uh baseball reference has a strength of schedule metric that basically measures the number of runs per game that a team's opponents are better or worse than average. So right now, Tampa Bay's average opponent has been 0.6 runs worse per game uh, than the average. So that's a, a fairly easy schedule, and they're 12 and 4. But if you look at the teams around them, Boston has the exact same strength of schedule thus far. They're 6 and 11. Cleveland has had an easier schedule. They're only 9 and 7. The Yankees have had by far the easiest schedule of anyone thus far. They're six and nine, and they've lost home series to Baltimore, to Chicago, the White the White Sox, and to Detroit. So yes, it's easier for Tampa Bay to win games against these bad teams, but at least they're winning them. And the other American League teams that are facing bad teams aren't even doing that much. Yeah, absolutely. Like that's that's so much of uh, we we've talked a lot uh, privately among the staff about the four-way race is shaping up in the National League East. And I think the team that I, you know, I, I picked Washington to win the division. Uh, but really, if I if I was able to make this pick, I would have said the team that wins the division is going to be the team that has the best record against the Marlins. Mm-hmm. Because that's, I mean, just beating up on bad teams is such an easy way to to just bank wins in tough pennant races. And Tampa's done that. I'm just saying, like, that first series notwithstanding, they haven't exactly gone up against the cream of the crop and they're, you know, maybe they get so far out in front by mid May. It doesn't matter when uh, they sort of come if and when they sort of come back to the pack later on in the season. Oh, sure. I think at least for the division, though, like you said, they're going to need every one of these wins, but every one of these wins is useful. Uh, I think the yes network had a graphic when I was watching a Yankees game recently that said that last year when Boston finished eight games ahead of New York for the division, they finished nine games ahead of New York against last place teams. It was basically Boston beat the Orioles a bunch and the Yankees played them even. And that's what won Boston the division and gave them home field in the playoff series. So every win counts for Tampa right now in a race that we expect to be this close. And you look at the Yankees, they have another injury today where Greg Bird, who granted wasn't hitting all that well. Now he's on the DL too. And I think Yankees- I assumed he was on the DL the whole time, <laughs> not to make light of what's, you know, kind of a, a depressing career so far for Greg Burb. And I think like at, at the very beginning of the season, I was doing something like a power rankings and I might've said Greg Bird was on the D or, or sorry, on the IL and, and he's not, um, or he wasn't at the time, but you know, just give it enough time, I guess on a, on a long enough timeline, Greg Bird will get hurt. But I think we're on the precipice now where the Yankees, I know we talked like just a week or two ago about do any teams have reason to be concerned after so, uh, you know, such a short period of time. And we said, not really, unless there are lots of injuries that change the longer term outlook of the team. And I think the Yankees are kind of there where yeah. so many players are injured. And like you look at Aaron Hicks, where it was, oh, he'll be ready soon. Oh, he'll be ready soon. He still hasn't really started taking swings yet. And he's been hurt for six weeks. So we're getting to the verge of do you have to take, I think, Tampa seriously as the best contender in the division? Yeah, the Yankees, I mean, not to turn this uh, segment about the underdog into another segment about the Yankees, but I've said this, I feel like I've said this for like three or four injuries in a row that the Yankees are at the limit of what they can sustain. Um, so they might be in trouble already, but I guess they're, the only way to to know is to find out. That's uh, our refrain for, for mid-May. So let me ask you one more thing and then I'll let you go. Uh, this started out as a bit now this is now it is tipped. You genuinely believe this? What you know? What a percentage bit? What percentage truth is the Tampa Bay Rays are the best team in the in the AL East? It probably started at around like sixty forty. That it was a bit that I wanted to pick at least one out of nowhere division winner, and it yeah. seemed like it was out of nowhere. Uh, but if you look at like some of Tampa's underlying numbers last year, they were actually like an upper nineties win team. If you strip out some 
effects of negative luck and such. So it was about 60-40 before. Now it's about probably a 20% bit, 80% real, where it's still a little too early for me to dive fully in, but I am almost there. This start really couldn't have gone any better for my prediction. Well, I mean, you're you're having a good week between this and and uh, your Game of Thrones pre-capables uh, being a success. It's a, a it, everything is coming up crammed. So, I guess remember me. Remember that I was good to you when when you're running everything. You weren't good to me when I made my raise prediction. I'll say that. Well, much. I I was wrong. I well, yeah, I guess I'll say that. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, Zach Cram is on every week. You can catch his work on baseball and basketball and Game of Thrones. Uh, he's the man who knows everything, and uh, we'll talk to you again next time. Until then. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. And that place is ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerMLB. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employees who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerMLB. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerMLB. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash R-I-N-G-E-R-M-L-B. ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerMLB. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So my next guest uh, is someone I know well from uh, my time in Houston. He is still there, uh, and uh, the Astros are on a winning streak, and he knows a lot about long winning streaks. So it's my pleasure to welcome back to the show Jake Kaplan of The Athletic. Jake. Michael, how are you? I'm doing okay. I'm happy to to talk to you again. Um, so the Astros started two and five, and there was a lot of concern. There was the the Josh Reddick tweet about how every, yeah everybody needs to to calm down. And since then, they've won nine in a row, uh, and they look like the the same old Astros. Yeah, Josh Reddick's tweet was like the uh, Aaron Rodgers uh, relax uh, equivalent, right? For the Astros. Um, yeah, I think it was. You know, they got off to that rough start that first week. Part of it was, was playing the, the Tampa Bay Rays, who were really good. Um, but they also weren't really hitting their stride yet. And, and since then, Jose Altuve has, has gone off his power after, you know, it was kind of uh, sapped last year by his, his right knee injury, his back, and uh, they've been on a roll. So Altuve is, he's one of two players who, he and, and Correa are sort of the, the faces of that team from the outside. Um, and, you know, he was dealing with the knee injury. Correa was a back injury last year, I think. Uh, and neither, you know, both of them were sort of inconsistent. Correa was just downright bad down the stretch, and both of them are, are hitting really well. So let's talk about Altuve first. Um, he had a streak of five straight games with a home run. He has reached, uh, or he yeah, it's two two or more hits in five of his last seven games. Um, this looks like the the Jose Altuve of sort of second half of twenty seventeen. You know, uh, first part of the playoffs twenty seventeen, which he was hitting as well as anybody I've ever seen up to and including Mike Trout. Yeah, it also kind of reminds me of his first half in twenty sixteen, which is when he started hitting all the home runs, and the story was like, where did this come from? Uh, I think he finished with twenty four that year, and then twenty four in his MVP year as well, I believe. Um, yeah, I think last year just he couldn't. He, his power was was uh, diminished because his, he was playing on a broken right kneecap for half the season. It really it was really like the first series out of the All Star break where he sustained the knee injury, and uh, it just wasn't the same after that. Uh, even though he did play through it, um, you know, I, I think this is just the healthy version and uh, the version the Astros uh, expected. I don't think they can expect five home runs in five games or, or I guess it was six home runs in five games, but, uh, all the time, but he did kind of go on these, these power binges in 2016 and 2017 when he just, he gets in the zone. He, he, he can do it despite his, uh, his stature. The next guy up is Correa who had a rough second half last year with an injury of his own. How does, you know, he's, he's hitting almost exactly in line with how he hit in 2017 when he made the all-star team, um, and was a six win player. So how does he look, uh, up close? Yeah, Correa's looked like the Carlos Correa of, of 2017. Um, you know, he's hitting balls really hard. He's playing uh, amazing defense. Really, his, his defense is a lot better than it was in, in 2015 through 17. 
took a big step up last year despite his, his offensive regression. Um, but he's been crushing the ball since spring training. He said from January on that he's, he's felt healthy. Uh, it was just a matter of getting that offseason of, of rest and, and rehab and, and kind of retraining his swing. Um, and, you know, he's, he's hitting the ball a lot harder than he did last year uh, to date. And I think the key is whether he can sustain it or not. Um, lost, lost in, in the shuffle of his, his uh, bad year last year was that he actually started strong last year too. You just kind of forget about it because of the, the cumulative numbers at the end. But um, this is a guy who's uh, hasn't stayed on the field for a full major league season since 2016. So that's, that's the big hurdle he needs to clear um, to kind of uh, do that and, and, you know, put together a full season um, with this, this level of performance. So let's talk about some of the new guys, you know, the Cray, Altuve, Alex Bregman, George Springer, Verlander, um, Derek Cole. These are all relatively familiar faces, but they went out and made a couple additions. Uh, if there was a hole on this team the last couple of years, it was in left field where they just sort of like that was where they stuck Marwin Gonzalez to get him in the lineup. Um, it's, you know, where we've seen them try both Tucker brothers at one point or another uh, since they returned <coughs> to the playoffs in 2015. And they actually went out and got a, a bona fide, you know, all star level corner outfielder uh, in Michael Brantley to go man that position. Um, you know, his, his numbers look fine. You know, how is he sort of fitting into that lineup in that clubhouse? Um, pretty seamlessly. Um, you know, from a veteran standpoint in the clubhouse, he's kind of that next in line of the Beltron, the can guys who have spent most of their careers elsewhere who come in to kind of help get the team over the edge. Um, you know, on the field, he's been kind of the guy you've always seen when he's healthy. Um, AJ Hinch has him batting fourth, uh, ahead of Carlos Correa and behind, Bregman, um, so two, three, four there between Altuve, Bregman, and Brantley. You have like three of the best bat the ball guys in the game. That's that's a gauntlet for for pitchers, and then you know Springer and Correa on either end of it. So um, he's been a really good fit for them uh, so far. I think he'd probably be a good fit everywhere, just given his skill set. But um, you know, getting that left-handed bat in their lineup was also a big emphasis for them. They're, they're just yeah, so right-handed in the top six. Yeah, because, I mean, Marwin Gonzalez being a switch hitter uh, and, you know, they had McCann wasn't really much of an offensive asset at any point last year. Neither was Kyle Tucker. And yeah, this is, uh, you know, guys like Altuve and Bregman uh, in particular are and Yuli Gurriel are, you know, really incredible bat to ball guys. And you don't I don't know how much the the platoon split really matters, but it is sort of stark, you know, that. If uh, if you got Josh Reddick, who's you know more of a bottom of the order bat in this lineup, you you do need probably at least one lefty to stick in the middle of all those right handed bats. Yeah, that that's a big part of it for them. And um, like you mentioned, they do have Josh Reddick, who's batting like six, seven, nine. Uh, Tony Kemp plays part time, another left handed bat. Um, but they they're just so right handed. They they needed that that you know sure thing left handed bat in the middle there. Um, they might get more left handed as the year goes on. Uh, if Kyle Tucker makes his way back up at some point, they have Jordan Alvarez in AAA. Um, but for right now, just having Brantley as that, that lefty to split up the righties has really changed the complexion of their lineup. So one guy I'm curious about, uh, another new addition is Robinson Trinos, who's been hitting great. And that's, you know, that's the, um, sort of the book on Trinos is he's going to hit. He's, he doesn't grade out, at least according to the public numbers, as a great defensive catcher. And this is in contrast to Max Stassi, who's at or near the top of the framing metrics. Um, you know, when I wrote about uh, teams maybe taking advantage of, taking advantage of uh, base stealing opportunities, Torinos was one of the catchers uh, that I suggested the teams pick on. Um, so, you know, you think about the Astros as a, a club that it takes everything into account like that. And, you know, they were the, the team that hired Mike fast after he, he brought catcher framing back to the, the forefront. So, you know, what, what is Jeff Lunauer, the front office or AJ Hinch, you know, have they addressed this at all uh, publicly? You know, the, some of the deficient, some of the deficiencies, at least as far as we can see it in Torino's game. Yeah. I think that was the big reason it was such an eyebrow raiser when they signed him, especially the, the framing part, like you mentioned, um, but Jeff Luno's response when, when asked about that was, was stressing how the Astros feel they can help them get better in that, that department. Um, and I, and I think it's too early to really take much of, of, uh, the framing numbers. It's just a tiny sample right now, but, um, you know, the, he, Torino spent all spring working on that 
um, and, and working on his setup and, and his throwing, he, he kind of changed a lot of mechanical things. Um, you know, from the publicly available metrics, as you alluded to, he was one of the worst catchers in both framing and throwing. Um, you know, so it'll be interesting to see where he grades out, you know, once we have a larger sample size. But uh, he's actually, you know, looked pretty solid throwing-wise behind the plate. Uh, teams haven't run a ton on him so far. Um, you know, he changed his, he shortened up his arm motion a little bit at the tip and uh, at a, getting after Brent Strom offered him a little tip, uh, funny enough, in spring training uh, to kind of help him shorten that arm action. But um, yeah, the receiving, I think he's still working on that. Um, and like I said, you know, it'll be really interesting to, to see where he grades out once, once we have a little bit more um, of a sample. Yeah, and if nothing else, he can hit, and they've got Stassi who, you know, showed that he could handle himself behind the plate last year. Um, you you mentioned uh, Jordan Alvarez, and we talked about Kyle Tucker a little bit. Forrest Whitley is a name that's uh, that's popped up a lot as a, somebody who could contribute to the Astros this year. Um, they don't really have that many holes. Like, there's not like there's not a rotation spot, for instance, right now, crying out for Forrest Whitley. You know, with Brantley hitting the way he is, it's not like uh, you know. Maybe Tyler White uh, and Josh Reddick have gotten off to a little bit of a, a slow start, and maybe that opens up a, a hole for Alvarez or Tucker down the line. But they've got a bunch of really good, you know, major league ready prospects, pretty much. So where where would they fit in the lineup? Would it take something like an injury to to open up a space for one of those guys to to come in and contribute? Yeah, I think it would take uh, an injury, at least one injury, maybe more, for that to happen. They're in an interesting spot because. Um, you know, they don't have options on these guys either. Tyler White is out of options. Tony Kemp's out of options. Um, Jake Marisnik is, is, is closing in on five years of service, which gives him the, the right to refuse an option, optional assignment. Um, and they're already carrying 13 position players as opposed to their usual 12. So um, they're having a hard time already getting at bats for their bench guys. So I think, you know, unless they're beset by injuries on the position player side front, they're going to have to make a more um, permanent move with someone at some point in the year, I would think. Uh, if those guys in the minors are, are continue to hit and really, you know, they, they need a clear spot for one of them. Whitley will be a little bit easier to, to slide in because they could use them, you know, starter, reliever, uh, any way they want. Um, you know, and they do have that, that back end of the spot to play with. They've already kind of uh, been playing around with it, skipping Brad Peacock a couple turns to, to lengthen their bullpen and whatnot. So, um, the position player one will be the really interesting one to watch in terms of how they maneuver it. Um, if, if those guys weren't a call up at some point. Yeah. I mean, this is a, a really nice problem to have. So I don't know if you, you'd even want to call it a problem. Uh, the Astros, after their slow start, they find, you know, they swept the, the Mariners over the weekend. Uh, they're almost all the way back to first place. Uh, Zach Cram came in here earlier and crowed about how, uh, we were talking about the best team in baseball on the pod and then the Astros, uh, you know, given the, the Rays hot start, given the struggles that the, the Yankees and the Red Sox have had off the bat, uh, you know, the Dodgers had some trouble with the Brewers over the weekend. You know, are the Astros sort of back on top of the heap? I think that's a good debate. Um, I'm assuming Zach Cram had the Astros on top. No, he has the Rays on top. He's all in on this, this Rays bit. He's, he, there's no reason. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's that's something we'll have to see over time. I mean, I think the Astros probably have them in the depth department, which um, would hold a lot of weight in, in any argument. But um, I don't know. It's a it's a good debate, and they've already played four of their seven games. So head to head, the Rays certainly have the advantage. But that's obviously a very small small sample of the season. Um, yeah, I don't know. The Astros certainly seem to be back to where everyone thought they would be uh, after that slow start. Um, you know, and, and they have uh, the A's and the Rangers and the Twins coming up. So there's no reason they can't continue to, to you know, on this, this trajectory they've started. Very diplomatic answer. Very beat writer answer. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thanks for joining me, Jake. It's uh, always a pleasure to have you on and, uh, and talk Astros. I imagine we'll talk again soon if they continue playing the, the way they have so far. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. 
Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all your profits. Plus, there's no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections such as 100 Most Popular. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of the Ringer MLB show a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. So sign up at ringermlb.robinhood.com. Brilliant Earth is the global leader in ethically sourced fine jewelry. Create your own custom engagement ring right on their website by picking from a variety of ethically sourced diamonds, gemstones, metal types, and settings. Brilliant Earth also offers wedding rings, vintage pieces, and many other handcrafted jewelry items with exclusive, unique designs you won't find anywhere else. Brilliant Earth is passionate about cultivating a more transparent, sustainable, and compassionate jewelry industry. Go above and beyond the current industry standards to offer beyond-conflict-free diamonds along with fine jewelry crafted from recycled precious metals. Even donate 5% of profits to help build a brighter future in communities impacted by the jewelry industry. Outstanding and highly personalized customer service is the hallmark of the Brilliant Earth shop experience. To make your Brilliant Earth purchasing experience as stress-free as possible, they offer free shipping and returns on all U.S., U.K., and Canadian orders. To enjoy free shipping and returns on any of Brilliant Earth's fine jewelry selections, just visit BrilliantEarth.com slash RingerMLB. That's BrilliantEarth.com slash RingerMLB. All right, our last segment is uh, we're going to pick up on some news from last week. Last Thursday, Ozzy Albies signed a seven-year, $35 million contract with the Atlanta Braves, or sorry, a contract uh, extension with the Atlanta Braves uh, with uh, two team options. I wrote about it last week. It's uh, it's weird and a little sad, and here to be weird and sad with me uh, is Ben Lindbergh. Ben. Yeah, here to end the podcast on a down note is Ben Lindbergh. Unless you're a Braves fan, then it's an up note. Yeah, we'll see. Um I don't know. We could we could stumble into something happy. Uh, <laughs> we'll maybe, maybe while we're talking about this, let, let's think of something uh, <laughs> uh, an upper to, to end the show on. Okay. Um. So Jeff Passan uh, quoted people uh, or anonymous sources when the when the story broke, uh, saying that this was the worst contract from a player perspective in baseball history. It's certainly within within time you know within a specific time horizon. I agree with him. Yeah, I mean, putting aside collusion and pre-players association right. yeah, days, yeah. of course. <laughs> you know, the reserve clause. And, <laughs> right. and- <laughs> Since players have actually made money playing baseball, this is, it's definitely up the there or down there. The worst deal of this type. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's really what Sal Perez and and not a whole other, a con- lot of other contenders for that title that no one wants. And mm-hmm. I know that uh, we've had a few days to digest this now, and I wouldn't say it's going down any easier than it did when we first found out about it. If anything, it's harder to fathom having had some time to reflect. And of course, there are people who look at the terms and see $35 million guaranteed and think this is suddenly a very wealthy young man. And that is true. He is making lots of money relative to most of us. But if you understand baseball economics and how much money is in the game right now, which is either going to the owners or the players, then you kind of raise an eyebrow at a deal like this that really stands out among the wave of extensions we've seen. You and I have talked about what those extensions signify, and we've done a written dialogue about it. And four or five times we've talked about this. I yeah. hadn't <laughs> considered that there might not be anything else to say when I decided that this was going to be our topic for this segment. <laughs> right. Well, they keep signing extensions just when I think that they're done. There's another one. And the Braves ones, I think, stand out. First, Acuna, which you wrote about and were skeptical of, and then suddenly Albies topped it or came in under it in terms of just how difficult to fathom it was. And I think that you have to take into account that this was sort of the perfect storm, it seems like, in terms of getting a player to sign for less than he probably would have made if he had stuck it out. 
you have a player from not a privileged background who did not get a big bonus. That is kind of the constant when it comes to some of the deals that seem particularly below market. It is often Latin American players. It's players who did not get big draft bonuses who didn't have a a big payday. And so they want money now. They want to secure their futures. And this is one way to do it. So that's part of it. Part of it also is that maybe Alpes was persuaded by Acuna signing. They're good buddies. They came up together. They want to stay together. Maybe part of it was the agency involved here. It's a, a small agency with not a whole lot of clients. One of those clients is Craig Kimbrell, who has not brought in any money lately. And so maybe there's extra pressure to get something signed, to have some cash flow. And then, of course, you also have to take into account the fact that Albies did have a serious injury. In September 2016, he fractured his elbow, and obviously he came back from that fine. But that's the kind of injury that maybe makes you think, oh, I can lose all of this really quickly. I'd better get something while it gets good. Yeah, and you know, I'm, the difference between this and the Acuna contract is that he's getting more money up front, and he's locking in like, you know, substantially more than than if he gets hurt and washes out in the next couple of years. And what is so troubling about the Albies thing, and it's and let me and before we get too far into this, I want to say that this is that one reason this is a bummer is that he's, you know, he is locked in to play for a team he likes with one of his best friends and has, you know, made sure that he and his family are going to be taken care of for the foreseeable future. And this ought to be one of the best days of his life. And all we can talk about is is how he got screwed, and if you know, I don't know how much of this is is getting back to Albies or to Albies himself, but it's uh, you know, that's that's got to be kind of a drag for uh, for him to experience. So I do want to acknowledge that. Yeah, I mean, for all we know, it it may have been one of the best days of his life. I, I think you can keep both of those ideas in your head. Right. It, it could be a great day for him. It can really enrich him. It did, obviously. And yet, given the kind of player he is and the kind of future he projects to have and the market, as we've come to understand it, it can still be a really low ball offer. So you, you kind of have to keep those two ideas in your head. Player got rich. Player got a lot less rich than he used to, which is a a difficult argument. I think some people have a hard time having sympathy for players who are making many millions of dollars. And I understand that, like in the grand scheme of global injustice, it doesn't really rank all that close to the top. Even in terms of baseball, you can get more righteously angry about minor league pay probably than major leaguers making fewer millions than they should have. But Albies is just such a good player and has already established himself as an all-star level player. And he's not a pitcher and there's less uncertainty in his case than there is in a lot of guys who've signed a deal before they made the majors or just after they made the majors, or maybe they are a pitcher and that's always subject to arm injuries. And so Really, when you look at what Albies projects to accomplish, you're talking, I mean, orders of magnitude more money than he actually signed for here. Like when you look at the terms and and you look at like the the option years that are tacked on to the end of this deal, and it's like 2026, 2027. I know that's a long ways away and he'll be 29 and 30 at that point, but the Braves have seven $7 million team options for both of those years. There's a, a $4 million buyout for the first one and no buyout for the second one. So the most he can ever make in a single season at any point during the length of this deal is $7 million. So he's going to be hitting free agency heading into his age 31 season. And who knows if over 30 free agents will be getting paid at that point. They're certainly not now, but he's signing away his entire productive 20s. And there's really just no ceiling here. Even if he hits the incentives and gets the most that he can get, there's just a, a really low ceiling for for this contract. You you would hope, and knowing what I know about the current Braves ownership, this is probably a vain hope, but you mentioned Sal Perez. Jose Altuve had another contract that was sort of in this genre, and both of those teams tore up the option years and gave those yeah. players something, sort like sort of a limited make good mm-hmm. deal. And I, I think uh, the Rays did the same with, with Evan Longoria, although that was back when dinosaurs walked the earth. So (laughs) I might be a little hazy on the details, but what, what's so puzzling about this is not only that, that he signed away his productive twenties, but you like the, the comparison, it should be something like the Alex Bregman deal 
which yeah. was six years. It was a five year extension for a hundred million dollars. And he's still playing on the, the current salary. I'm pretty sure. Um, but financially it's the Scott Kingery deal, except worse. It's the same amount of, of team control given up for a younger player with an actual major league track record of, of like he was an all-star last year yeah, and who's younger. And it's just puzzling. You know, I just keep coming back to why he signed the deal and why his agent let him sign the deal. And because mm-hmm. the, and the downside, we keep talking about the downside. You know, I mentioned this in the column jerks and Profar got hurt, missed all two seasons and came back and made a million dollars a year in arbitration the next two years. In one of which he hit like one, you know, I don't want to misstate that. He was bad. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> it, it, this was well before his 20 home run season uh, last year. And so I, you know, the downside, given that uh, Alwi's has uh, produced at the big league level already, if he gets hurt, he's going to go on the big league DL. And he's going to you know keep on accruing service time and major league salary. And I... There's just not enough upside for him mm-hmm. in this deal, and it's just you know I, I I'm I'm so surprised that I can barely even bring myself to be indignant about it. Yeah, and Passon reported that the Players Association tried to talk him and or his agent out of the deal that they were against it, and obviously they can't prevent him from signing it. Players make their own decisions, and you can debate how much they should feel beholden to the union or to other players to try to set the market. But when a player does sign a deal like this, it kind of hurts everyone else. I mean, maybe that shouldn't be his his primary responsibility. That should maybe be to himself and his family. But I think MLB probably is thrilled and ready to hand out the championship belt to someone at this point because now you have a player like Albies who doesn't go through the arbitration process and doesn't run the risk for teams of bumping up the precedents and setting new records. I mean, that's part of the fallout from this wave of extensions we've seen. It's just a a whole generation of players who just won't even be going through arbitration and won't be raising those comps that the whole process is based on. And so it would be one thing if Liberty Media, the owners of the Braves, like if you could count on them to invest elsewhere, if it were like, okay, we got these sweetheart deals with Acuna and Albies, now we'll go out Just and say sign nothing of Cobb County, by the way. Well, sure. I mean, yeah, the, the Braves have a whole history throughout their whole minor league chain, even of getting public funding for their parks in kind of shady ways. But if you could count on them to redistribute this money to payroll, That would be one thing. And sure, there are non-payroll costs that teams accrue, but payroll's a big one. And I just don't know that you can count on the Braves to splurge somewhere else because historically, that hasn't really been the way they've operated. And it wasn't the way they operated this past winter. They decreased their payroll relative to last year's opening day, while the Phillies increased theirs by almost 50%, and the Nationals and the Mets were both up. It's a really competitive division, and the Braves basically signed Josh Donaldson and then sort of stood pat for the rest of the winter, brought back Nick Markakis, but that was kind of it. But it'd be one thing if you felt like, okay, somewhere down the line, the players will profit from this because the Braves have all this money to spend now, and they will send they'll spend it on someone else. But as it is, you'd have to think they will probably just be content to win the the dollars per war battle here. I think yeah. they entered the season with the tenth lowest payroll and really the lowest payroll of any non Rays or A's contender or playoff team from last year. So I think a lot of fans were disappointed with how they operated and how unaggressive they seemed to be. Yeah. And you mentioned the dollars for war title. You know, you don't have to go back that far to think about or to see an example of what the Braves do when they have a young, talented core capable of contending locked <laughs> right. up to team friendly deals. Because what happened last time Trade is they all. traded all of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That it seemed premature at the time. And I think you could probably make the case that it was. Obviously, yeah. their rebuild worked. I mean, they're back here. It didn't take too long to get back here. And they're good. And they have a young talent base and a pretty bright future. But that was one of the cases where it seemed like, is this team really in a position where it has to scrap everything and start over? And it it just did not seem that that was the case. It's just all very cynical. You know, like this was, uh, God, I guess it was four years ago now when Chris Bryant was going through his 
uh, service time manipulation uh, ordeal, and we were all getting off our takes. And uh, our friend Jason Wojciechowski wrote, I think it was for Vice. Uh, it's the the single. It might be the single baseball writing uh, paragraph of of the past ten years that sticks with me the most. Uh, it's something like it's if uh, if it's not illegal, it's Good is one way to build a society, but it's not the way that most of us would choose if we realized we had a choice. Um, and it's just like that level of cynicism seems to be at work with the Braves. And I don't know if like if they turn around and, and say, well, we've got a, uh, you know, a 30 million dollar a year player under team control for five million dollars a year. Uh, let's go spend that 25 million dollars on whoever the next free agent is. If they're, you know, if there are good free agents in, in three or four years, then I'll admit I'm wrong when that happens. Mm-hmm. I just don't see this going anywhere other than uh, the pockets of of a faceless, uh, you know, faceless corporation. Yeah, and um, I'll be as- made the decision to sign this deal. No one forced him to do it as far as we know. And it, there wasn't... it seems like at least the Players Association tried to talk him out of it. So. Right, yeah. And as far as we know, there, there wasn't any kind of threat or pressure applied here. It wasn't like he was one of these players who was going to have his service time manipulated and maybe signed the deal in part so that he could start the season on the opening day roster. He's an established player. It's just you wonder what kind of advice he got. Was his agent advocating this? Was he the one who was pushing it? We don't know exactly how the deal went down. And you just hope that, I mean, you can understand why any young player signs a contract like this. There is a lot of risk associated with being a player who hasn't been paid yet. But you have to pay attention to all the kind of built-in pressures in the system that are leading to a lot of players signing these deals. And if you're the Players Association, you want to try to reduce those pressures somehow in the next round of collective bargaining so that you get players paid earlier in their careers and so they don't feel the need to sign away their futures for some fraction of what they likely would have earned if they had stuck it out because waiting, you know, it can come back to burn the odd player here or there. And if you're a player, you only have one career to gamble with. Whereas if you're a team, you have many, you can spread the risk around, you can afford it if someone doesn't pan out. Player doesn't have that luxury, but that's the whole thing that the union will be fighting for this time around, I think, is just making sure that a player who's up as young and as early and as good as Ozzy Albies and Ronald Acuna don't feel like they have to do something like this, that they have money coming to them earlier than they would under the current system. Yeah, I. that's something, making sure that the money gets, you know, not even fighting necessarily fighting for a bigger share, but making sure that the money goes to the most productive players and sort of shifting it so you get so players get paid earlier i think has to be that's something the union has to take care of internally because you know the reason that the system is built the way it is is because it's built by veterans and mm-hmm. as much as as capital exploits labor we too frequently see older labor exploiting younger labor and that's uh yeah you know, it's it's not morally equivalent maybe but it's it's a problem and and capital in this case has uh, in the form of ownership has been all too happy to take advantage of that internal tension, and that's something that that the MLBPA has to you know get its own get its own house in order. You know, make sure everybody's on the same page because you know that's a battle. Maybe I is it winnable? I don't know, but it's definitely worth fighting. Um, yeah, it's it's hard to say whether it's winnable because obviously to get something you have to give up something, and I'm not what sure. What else can they give up? I like, know <laughs> it's hard to know. I mean, it it makes perfect sense for the players to want this change, but it makes perfect sense for the owners to not give them this change. And I don't know whether there's something the players could give up to convince the owners to make that concession. And if not, then of course the only recourse is a strike, is just threatening no baseball. And no one wants to see it come to that, of course, but this is becoming a more pressing issue. And and you can kind of quibble about how much the Players Association is to blame, whether they should have anticipated all of this. I think to some extent the system worked for decades. And I think this has taken a lot of us by surprise, the extent to which free agency just stopped functioning the way it historically has. So, how quickly. 
Right. Very quickly. And, you know, maybe some of this could have been projected. Maybe it should have been foreseen. Maybe they should have been more aggressive about building in some protections here. But one way or another, this is the system that we seem to be stuck with. And I don't know that it's going to change unless it can be collectively bargained because teams aren't suddenly going to start handing out big long-term deals to old free agents again, as long as you have this youth movement in baseball, because the best players are the young players. And I think that has a lot to do with some of the advances in player development that we've seen lately, and those aren't going away either. So I don't know that this problem is going to fix itself. So let's end on this. Yeah. What's the what happened in baseball over the past week that has made you smile? Clayton Kershaw came back and he pitched and well. We homered off him. Yeah, well, that wasn't so great. But other than that, I you mean, don't that, think was, that a, was great. I thought it was, was a, awesome. It was a fun moment. I mean, it, it was it didn't bode well for Kershaw. I want to see Kershaw be good. I want to see both of those guys be good. But Kershaw was good, and he went seven innings in his first start back after a long layoff, which was encouraging. I think he threw 84 pitches, which was very efficient. He didn't walk anyone. He struck out six guys. So that was all nice. That definitely put a smile on my face. I mean, the downside of that, of course, is that he was throwing 90 and topping out at 91 and throwing more sliders than he was fastballs, which is just I guess current Kershaw, that's just what Mm -hmm. he's going to be. So that lowers the ceiling somewhat, but it also showed that he can succeed with this stuff at least some of the time. So that was encouraging. You're in the, the Pedro is the best pitcher you've ever seen. Yes. Camp, right? Yeah. At, at his peak. Yes. Yeah. I wonder, see, I would, I would probably take Kershaw over Pedro, but I wonder if that's, a function of you having been raised in an American league city and me having been raised in a national league city. Yeah. Um, back when yeah. that mattered. Yeah. Uh, when we were back at Grantland, I did a comparison of those two guys in their peak seasons. And once you do all the adjustments, Pedro just blows everyone away because he was doing that at the height of the home run PED offense mm-hmm. era in Fenway Park, in the AL East, against the DH. I mean, everything was arrayed against him, and he was so phenomenal that once you apply any of those corrections, he just leaps off the page. So the raw numbers, you can make a case, but I just, I don't see how you can. I definitely think that, that, uh, at least for people our age, Pedro over Kershaw is the orthodox position. Uh Um, You know, maybe if you're a little bit older, you go Clemens. I think that Clemens' longevity uh, speaks for itself in a way that it doesn't for Pedro or, or Kershaw. Uh, let me oh, tell yeah. you, so my my favorite thing that happened in the past week is also Yasiel Puig home run. Uh, <laughs> okay. The the Reds and the Cardinals were playing in, in uh, I think it was Monterey, Mexico this weekend. And at the very end of the last game, I think it was the bottom of the eighth on Sunday, Cardinals bring in Giovanni Gallegos, who's the only Mexican uh, player on either roster and he mm. apparently hadn't pitched all weekend and like the ESPN broadcast uh, just oh man what what a great moment this is going to be his parents are here he's brought in you know X number of his family <laughs> what a special moment for him to to pitch in a, a regular season game in his own country for a major league team and the crowd yeah I don't know I don't know if the crowd was as into it as as the announcers were, were making it look like and like they didn't cut away they didn't cut away in the the middle of the eighth inning as he was coming in to warm up. Like you see this for the ninth inning of a no hitter. And so it's a huge deal and he gets on the mound and like the first pitch he throws Puig crushes and takes him (laughs) out to dead center. And I had to be picked up off the ground. I was laughing so hard. Um, So your high point of the week is seeing someone's dreams dashed and his family crushed. I mean, I don't think he would. I mean, (laughs) That's an uncharitable way to <laughs> describe what <laughs> to describe it. It's the juxtaposition of the hype and the result. You know, yeah. comedy is comedy is is the art of the of timing and the unexpected. <laughs> and and uh, this definitely had both of those components. Yeah, it's always nice to see some broadcaster phoniness just fall on its face when you're artificially building up hype. But yeah, that sounds I, like a. I don't a fun know if moment. they thought it was artificial. It was yeah. just like I I think. I, yeah, I don't want to say it was artificial. I want to say they definitely thought it was a bigger moment than than maybe than certainly I did. Um, but it was just hilarious to to see all that go. And he settled down and pitched fine. The you know got out of the rest of the inning. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, Yasiel Puig is, has homered off of better pitchers than Giovanni Gallegos. And, you know, better yes. pitchers than the Giovanni Gallegos will uh, 
will uh, get tagged by Puig in the future. So there's certainly no shame in allowing that home run, but there is great humor. <laughs> Indeed, if you, you take pleasure in others' misfortunes, which I think we I, both do I from don't time like, to time. <laughs> I'm not sure I like your tone. I think you're insinuating something about me morally that I'm not entirely comfortable with. <laughs> I'm just saying your your high point of the week was someone's low point of the week. It, it doesn't have to come at someone's expense, but I probably would have been right there with you laughing alongside uh, who was the who's the pitcher who got sent down to make room for Clayton Kershaw? I'm sure mm, there, the Dodgers yeah. made a yeah. Baseball's so a zero sum game. If someone succeeds, is. someone always has to fail. If you can't laugh at at uh, at minor failures, then you're never going to survive in this day and age. Mm-hmm. All right, so that was you know we ended with laughter after 17 minutes of uh, just how just <laughs> crushing pessimism. So yep. I think that's a, a good point to end this segment and indeed the show. Yeah, good job. All right, we'll talk to you next week. Okay. That will just about do it for this episode of the Ringer MLB Show. Thanks to Zach and Ben, as always. Thanks to this week's guest, Jake Kaplan, whose work you can find at The Athletic and whose tweets such as they are, you can find at Jake M. Kaplan. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to Brandon Lau, Jose Altuve, and Yasiel Puig for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy this week's action, and we'll see you next time. Brilliant Earth is the global leader in ethically sourced fine jewelry. Create your own custom engagement ring and pick from a variety of ethically sourced diamonds, gemstones, metal types, and settings. Brilliant Earth also offers wedding rings, vintage pieces, and many other handcrafted jewelry items with exclusive, unique designs you won't find anywhere else. To enjoy free shipping and returns on any of Brilliant Earth's fine jewelry selections, just visit BrilliantEarth.com/ringermlb. That's BrilliantEarth.com/ringermlb.